Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, investment managers like to slice and dice the world into manageable chunks, for example, developed, emerging, and frontier markets. Or we like acronyms like BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China. And what's interesting about these buckets and names is they often become self-reinforcing and drive investment flows around the world. And this can be at odds with the economic growth of the underlying countries. To put forward the case to look beyond the BRICS, enter stage left, my guest this week. His name is Maurits Pott. He's the founder of Dawn Global and manager of the Cubs ETF, which invests in five difficult-to-access emerging economies, including Bangladesh, Indonesia, Pakistan, Philippines, and Vietnam. He transcends the emerging and frontier markets labels. And as you'll hear, is pretty clear in his belief that these are some of the fastest growing economies in the world with a superb potential. In this episode, we discuss Maritza's background, the value proposition of Cubs, and the potential for actively managed ETFs. He's an articulate guy and clearly incredibly passionate about his proposition. I hope you enjoy this one. As usual, if you have any questions, then do get in touch at whyinvest.co.uk. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Moritz Pot, welcome to the podcast. Moritz, we're going to start with your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you study? And how did you start your career? Well, Doug, thanks so much for having me today. I'm very excited for this conversation. I grew up in Europe. Uh, I'm originally Dutch, but I grew up in the UK for a while. I went to the US when I was 16, where I finished my high school, and then I finished my college there. And during high school in the US is actually when I first spent time in what I now do professionally, which is emerging markets. I studied in the US at college. I graduated 10 years ago. I started my career at Goldman Sachs in M&A, where I was a natural resources banker. So following that, I was a commodities trader at Vittal. For the past six years, I've been working for a London-based fund called Kingsway, investing in frontier emerging markets, essentially emerging markets in places like Pakistan, Egypt, Vietnam, and other parts of South Asia. And what originally drew you to emerging and frontier markets? What originally drew me was, there was actually a book I read in 2005 when I was at school in the US. It's called The World is Flat in the Early Stages of Globalization, a book by Tom Friedman. And at the time, for me, the idea that, you know, I came from a you know, provincial background in Europe and the idea that there was this globalized world where historical boundaries that were defined by geography, defined by history or defined by economics were kind of transcended. And the world was, I wouldn't say a level playing field, but was a flattening playing field. And that kind of you know, inspired me, that intrigued me. And I think it was an issue was a, an intellectual interest and that subsequently morphed into a, a personal interest and ultimately morphed into a professional interest. So during my first summers, when I was you know, still finishing my high school, I would spend my summers trying to get experience and trying to get exposure to some of these countries that I was learning about, I was intrigued about through different internships. Those were internships with a microfinance bank, with an NGO, with a bank, and frankly, gave me exposure to a number of quite interesting countries at a you know, relatively young age, and also gave me an understanding of, I guess, the opportunity, but also the complexity that these countries offered. Do you think it's a different skill set in being an investor in developed markets in contrast to emerging and frontier markets? So I, I think you know, ultimately company analysis doesn't necessarily differ that much between developed versus emerging markets. One of the key differences is the availability of information. I think one of the, the benefits of doing something in emerging markets or one of the opportunities is that there's frankly less people looking at these companies. Now, I think the flip side to that is there's definitely potentially greater risks in emerging markets, risks on a country level, on a company level, on an industry level. 
despite the, the headline opportunities which sound very exciting in emerging markets, it's difficult to make money in emerging markets. And I think that's why you've seen emerging markets funds historically have you know, difficult uh, performance or, or volatile performance. I think the last decade was particularly difficult. The first decade of this millennium was actually a lot better. And I think there's reason to believe that this decade won't be the same as the last decade. But I think fundamentally, one of the most interesting things about emerging markets is the kind of confluence of growth opportunities, but also demographic opportunities. And when I think about emerging markets, I look at companies that I believe will benefit from the demographics that drive the unique characteristics of some of the countries I invest in today. Does that then lead you down to a certain style of investment? If you're looking at countries that have favorable demography, are you therefore finding companies or do you favor companies that play into that, say, consumption theme? Yeah, it's a fair question. So I think historically when people looked or got exposure to emerging markets, they got exposure to steel, cement, tobacco, telecoms. My feeling is if, if I'm interested in the demographics, it's one of the key drivers. And when I think about demographics, I think about young populations, large populations, educated populations, and ultimately today, especially in Asia, digitally enabled populations. Investing in steel, tobacco, and cement is not a great way to play that demographic. So what I focus on more is what I would like to think is the, the economy of tomorrow. So I focus primarily on industries, including healthcare, including technology, media, and telecoms, including FMCG, and ultimately also digital banking. So I think what I'm focused on is, is what I would argue is the next generation of emerging markets. So not China, India, Brazil. These are large, liquid, fast-growing economies, but countries which are overlooked by the key emerging market indices, which are very concentrated, some would say broken. And instead, I also then focus on what I would argue is the next generation of, of companies and industries in those emerging markets. It's a fundamentally different approach. It's an active approach. I'm the first and only active ETF in the world focused on emerging markets. But I do believe you need an active lens to manage the right risks, but also to find the right companies in the countries I'm focused on. Now, I want to come back to active ETFs and the philosophy behind active ETFs. But before I do, let's just take a step back and, and introduce your company. It's Dawn Global, which you, you founded. What's the value proposition of Dawn Global? So the value proposition of Dawn Global is if you're looking to get exposed to emerging markets, and historically emerging markets have been under-allocated to, in the US, the observed EM allocation in equities portfolios, maybe 10%, roughly 8 to 10%. Historically, people would look at index-driven products. And part of the reason is because index-driven products are one of the largest or one of the most dominant drivers of, of flows in emerging markets. Now, those products today, but also historically, are increasingly concentrated only on, on a number of emerging markets, specifically China, India, Brazil, Korea, and Taiwan. Now, these are large countries. These are, in many you know, regards, emerging, in some cases, emerged. Korea and Taiwan have a higher GDP per capita than Italy, Spain, or Portugal, yet they're still classified as emerging markets. China, India, and Brazil are you know, not as far advanced potentially as Korea and Taiwan, but I think they're seen as you know, later stage emerging markets. What I'm focused on is the next generation of emerging markets, which basically for me means uh, specifically firstly in Asia. So I'm focused essentially on Southeast Asia. I'm the first and only ETF focused on Southeast Asia, focused on five countries, 860 million people, 430 million active Facebook users, and a GDP as big as India. And despite these five countries having the collective characteristics I mentioned, there's zero products focused on these countries together. And I think the key tenet is people have realized that the global EM model is broken. I think an evidence of that is BRICS. You know, when BRICS was launched 16 years ago, you know, it was seen as a you know, pioneering EM product. BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, coined by Jim O'Neill. But if you look at the BRICS products today, none of them are around. 
And Jim O'Neill's written quite publicly about the fact that if he were to reinvent the BRICS in 2021, he would more likely call it the X than the BRICS, because fundamentally the similarities between Brazil, Russia, and India and China are very different. And I think there's different growth history, but also different growth outlook. So what I'm looking to do is actually straddle between the global EM model, which is broken, the single country EM model, which I think people are frankly not prepared to take the single country risk, and therefore focus on regional products. And regional products, I think, gives you the flexibility of not being tied to one specific country, allows you to diversify that risk across a number of countries, especially countries where it's hard to hedge underlying currency or sovereign risk, but still gives you concentrated exposure to any regional time. And I think if you look at the last 34 years, what you see is at any point in time, different regions are in vogue at different times. Today, you could argue Asia is probably one of the first places people want to be. If you rewind 23 years ago to 1998, it was the last place people want to be. If you look at Africa today, it's probably one of the last places people want to be. If you rewind 10 years ago to the height of commodities boom, it's probably one of the first places people want to be. So I think the point is I basically am looking to build a business, focus on active, regional, thematic ETFs in emerging markets beyond the key indices. So I don't touch Brazil, Russia, India, China. I don't touch Korea and Taiwan. I'm focused on what I believe will be the BRICS of tomorrow. And my first product is called the Cubs. And I believe the Cubs potentially has a good opportunity to become a BRICS-like phenomenon, specifically focused on Southeast Asia. We'll come back and introduce the Cubs in a second, but I want to just go back and hang on a point that you made earlier, this disconnect between indexation and economic growth. You mentioned that part of the reason is to do with this, this acronym, the BRICS, but why else do you have these weird disconnections in, in markets and fundamentals? So I think index providers are very powerful and obviously they, they definitely dictate the shape of the flows. You know, I think people have historically been comfortable with, with China being 30 to 40% of the index. I think increasingly people realize that's a liability. If you add China and Taiwan together, you get almost 50% of the index. I think the bigger point to make is that in the ETF space historically, and to also the mutual fund space to a lesser extent, it's primarily been a passive index-driven hedging product. I think what's emerging is active ETFs as an independent, recognized asset class. Now, to give you a bit of background on active ETFs, they were founded by Bear Stearns in 2008. They remained a largely dormant asset class until Cathy Wood obviously has built the asset class quite materially since 2016 through ARK Invest. But to give you an idea on, on the active equity ETF size globally, it's still tiny today. The ETF complex today is somewhere between $9 to $10 trillion. As of June, active equity ETFs was only $125 billion. And of that $125 billion, Cathie Wood was roughly half of the overall industry. And there was only three funds that had more than $5 billion under management in active equity ETFs. So I think what I'm trying to argue, what I'm trying to show, is we're still in the early stages of active ETF adoption. But active ETFs today are the fastest growing part of the overall ETF complex. And I think ultimately for a strategy like emerging markets, where you need an active lens to not only identify risks and manage risk, but also to identify the right companies, you need an active lens. And historically, if you've taken a passive lens, especially a market weighted lens, which is historically what passive EM index products would do, you basically a way to the companies, what I would argue, the companies of yesterday, not the companies of tomorrow. When... You're thinking about your universe in Southeast Asia. I mean, a lot of the markets are characterized by illiquidity. Now, I wonder how you manage that liquidity, or is there a liquidity mismatch between a, a daily dealing ETF and some of your underlying investments? And if so, how do you manage that disconnect? This is a very good question. I think that's also why an ETF is actually quite uniquely suited to potentially less liquid or less predictably liquid products. Because an ETF, you're essentially, it's a, 
the way someone else has described me is like a liquidity accordion. You have two levels of liquidity. You have liquidity on, obviously on the trade ETF level, but also on the underlying stock level. Now, that basically means that in periods of less liquidity, the structure of the ETF product caters to that variability in liquidity. In terms of the underlying market liquidity, I think when people have historically thought about emerging markets, they, they commonly think about instability, illiquidity, volatility, and you know, unpredictability. I think what's different about Southeast Asia versus you know, other parts of Asia people may have looked at, that these are large economies, these are liquid economies, these are fast-growing economies. And what's interesting was specifically about the regions I'm focused on is emerging market investors have increasingly focused on four or five countries, which is China, India, Brazil, and Korea. But what's happening actually in the next generation of emerging markets is that foreigners have been sellers. And despite the foreigners have been sellers for the last five years, liquidity in these markets is at all-time highs. And why? Because foreign buyers have been displaced by local buyers. So I think the point to make is that liquidity is structurally improving a lot, and it's improved a lot without foreign buyers coming back to these markets. And as a result of obviously foreigners leaving these markets, valuations in these markets are materially more attractive relative to A, the larger EM countries, but B, to obviously Western um, capital markets, which in some cases are at all-time highs, which is not the case in places like Southeast Asia. Just uh, holding on on that point, does the time horizon of the average investor change when you go from foreign to domestic? And are the markets characterized by shorter term market participants, retail driven market participants, rather than longer term institutions? So I think it's a balance. I think historically, the local money was seen as primarily being retail money. I think what you're seeing is you're seeing a greater mix of both local retail and local institutional money. You know, in a case like Indonesia, you definitely see a material increase in retail participation in the local stock market, which has also been facilitated by several new Robinhood-like companies that have emerged in Indonesia in the past you know, 18 to 24 months. At least one, maybe two are now unicorns. But in general, I think what you're starting to see is you're starting to see greater institutional local participation. Now, I'm not saying that that is maybe as long-term as foreign institutional participation, but it's definitely more long-term than what people assume historically about local retail participation. And I think what I'm trying to get at is that structurally, the provision of liquidity in these markets is improving, but also the mix of investors in these markets is, is changing. And that's even before you have foreign institutions come back, which ultimately you could argue are probably the most long-term and the most stable when it comes to liquidity in these markets. I want to touch your investment process. I wonder how you begin the sort of sorting exercise of finding great companies and how you marry you know, your thematic top-down process and your sort of bottom-up stock selection process? So it's, it's basically there's three steps to the process. The first step is a, is a quantitative uh, screen, which has five layers. There's an, an ESG layer, which is actually today running on an exclusion basis. We would like to move to an ESG inclusion uh, process, but apparently we're relying on ESG scoring on that. We can talk about that in a minute, if you like, on ESG. Uh, second is size. We look at minimum free float, minimum market cap. Three, we look at free float uh, and liquidity. So basically, what is the liquidity uh, in the company? We have, again, a, a minimum cutoff on that. Fourth, we look at quality. And we have uh, three key measures the way we look at quality. We look at revenue growth. We look at gross margin and we look at ROI. And then four, uh, fifth, sorry, we look at risk. And when we look at risk, we look at risk in three ways. We look at gearing, we look at leverage. And then for banks, we look at MPLs. And for us, that is a quantitative way to screen a universe that starts with three and a half thousand companies. After you go through that screen, we're down to less than a hundred companies. On those hundred companies, we run a three-step, you could call a bottom-up qualitative analysis, 
has three layers. One is we meet or speak with every company in that 100 company pool. And I think for us, that's an important metric because there's companies that scream well, but ultimately when you meet the management behind the company, even if a company screams well, you may not be comfortable with the management when you meet the management. And I think a few key things you can scream for without meeting them are, you know, skin in the game, board independence, reporting quality, but I think also, you know, having a, an annual, if not semi-annual engagement with management is, is critical. Uh, second of all, we look at valuations. And when we look at valuation, we don't have a strict valuation cutoff. But what we rather look at, we look at valuations through the cycle. So on a 10-year basis, on a plus two, minus two standard deviation basis, where do companies trade to give us an idea of you know, how far above or below the, the 10-year average are we? Where are we buying in relative to the cycle? And I think thirdly, what we do is for key income statement and balance sheet line items, we deduct them from the filings instead of from Bloomberg. And the key exercise there is to verify that we are comfortable with the underlying financials, to verify that what Bloomberg is telling us we're screening on is also consistent with what the filings are producing. And for us, it's not an audit, but it is a financial analysis to confirm that we are comfortable with what is filed, not only what is provided uh, through Bloomberg, which in some cases in these companies can still differ. That limits the universe from, we've gone from 3,500 to less than 100 to less than 50. And then the portfolio, we take a, a, I guess, a more systematic approach to actually how we build a portfolio. We equally weight, we semi-annual rebalance, and we have strict country and industry concentration limits. And the thinking there is, when people have been scarred in EM, one of the most common concerns people have is, is concentration risk. People wake up and 40 plus percent of their portfolio is in one company or, or in one country, and there's an, an earnings miss or there's an effects evaluation, and that has obviously a material impact on the overall portfolio. So what we look to do is we basically look to manage that single company, single country risk to ensure that no company, no country can pose a systemic risk to the overall portfolio. And I think you've seen that concentration risk issue come up in the past year, not in my portfolio, but frankly, in the EM indices, where people, you know, yesterday, they were comfortable with, with China's weighting index, but increasingly people are, are uncomfortable and people want products where there's a lesser concentration to China given the perceived risk associated with China today. And I wonder if you can talk about cell discipline and what happens when things go wrong and, and perhaps the way you may have misunderstood or missed something in the investment thesis. How quickly are you to get out of your positions? So we only trade quarterly with two exceptions. One is we can trade outside of the quarterly window if there's a takeover event. And we can trade out out of the window if there's a financial or regulatory concern that's arisen that change of view on the business. The focus here is to actually reduce the volume of trading, but improve the quality of decisions we make. So we restrict ourselves from trading daily, weekly, monthly. At the end of every quarter, we can revisit a portfolio. And what that means for us is that hopefully we trade less, but when we trade, we are more thoughtful in, in the decisions we make. The portfolio has only been around for four and a bit months. So it's you know, relatively early to speak about what I've called experience. I think the only decision we made at the end of last quarter were to basically um, remove some, to raise the liquidity bar in the portfolio. And that basically led to the removal of, of three companies. Uh, I think as the product scales, we'll probably focus on larger, more liquid companies. I think what's different today versus perhaps five or 10 years ago is historically, it was assumed or often seen that the best companies in these countries were the least liquid. Maybe an example of that is in, in Pakistan. One of the best businesses in Pakistan historically was deemed to be the tobacco monopoly, which was a big business, but highly liquid. We do not invest in it. What we do invest in is a software business in Pakistan, which derives majority of its revenues actually from the US. And this is an example of a company that is you know, materially smaller than, for example, tobacco monopoly, but has 10 times the liquidity of the tobacco monopoly. So I think the correlation between 
size and illiquidity is no longer necessarily the case, especially in the kind of universe of countries which I'm focused on. And people who've looked at frontier or emerging markets historically, I think a common perception has been, well, the best companies are hard to get into because there's no liquidity, but I don't think that's the case necessarily in the kind of companies we focus on today. And I wonder if we can talk about your competition. What are the other options for getting access to areas like Southeast Asia? Because active ETF is, is one option. Investment trust is probably another option. Mutual funds is probably another option. Why do you think ETFs are the superior option in that space? So I think there's a few reasons why, well, first of all, about the competition. So if I break down the competition, there's no other active product. But if you look at the passive products, the indices, their exposure to Southeast Asia is roughly 2 to 3%. So I think it's hard to argue that they are real competition. If you look at the MSCI Asia products, again, the exposure is 2 to 3% for the same reason they're dominated by you know, the, the legacy economies in Asia, if I may call them that way. In terms of specific country-specific products, there are specific ETFs for Philippines, Pakistan, Vietnam, and Indonesia. Each of the countries has one, uh, Indonesia has two, zero ETFs covering Bangladesh. The last Bangladesh ETF closed about 18 months ago. But if you look at what's in these country-level ETFs, they buy legacy economies in large concentration and with big exposure to financials and industrials. So I think the question is, is that exposure you want in these countries and you want that exposure in that concentration? And I think from increasing investors realize as much as they like to get exposure, they want that kind of exposure. A simple example to contextualize this. If you look at Indonesia, it's a roughly a half a trillion market cap economy. The two largest banks in Indonesia have a combined market cap of roughly $100 billion. And these are the banks that are covered in all the indices. These are brick and mortar banks, big, large institutional banks. My view is in an economy like Indonesia, which you know, has smartphone penetration over 60%, 270 million people, you want to bet on what I believe is the digital economy. The digital bank of Indonesia, Bank Jago, which is the exclusive financial partner for the Gojek Tokopedia ecosystem, that is a listed bank which has a roughly $15 billion market cap. That bank is not covered in any of the indices for two reasons. One, because of size, and two, because it's a you know, newer company. It's a newer company that's listed, but also has institutional shells such as GIC, uh, such as Tomasek and other you know, credentialized foreign investors. That's a good example for me where you know, the, the indexes don't give you exposure to the companies you necessarily be invested in in these countries. I think your, your second question, the key benefit that an ETF offers you is, I think, a few things. I think that one, there's transaction, uh, there's tax benefits. Given, obviously, every transaction at the ETF level doesn't lead to an underlying share purchase, share sale. Obviously, market makers will be long short the ETF. And the second of all, I think the kind of efficiency with which you can trade in and out of the products. Mutual fund is obviously a single day dealing product. ETF is a you know, intraday uh, dealing product. And I think thirdly, if you just look at the flows, I think investors increasingly realize that they deem ETF the wrapper of the future. Now, that's not my words. That, that's what you would read about. And I think in terms of why do people deem it, I think it's because of the tax reasons, the efficiency reasons. I think also product innovation in mutual funds has lagged. I think the majority of product innovation that's been launched has been launched in the ETF wrapper. So those are the key reasons why we've gone through the ETF route. Does it mean that you need to concentrate or do you need to have a skill set perhaps on, on market making? And who does your market making? How do you make sure that you're getting you know, good prices? So our market makers are Citadel, Jane Street, Goldman Sachs and Virtu. And the reason why we went through the, these market makers is that we basically wanted to ensure best in class execution. So if you look at our spreads, our spreads on our ETF are in the tightest 20% of all emerging market ETFs, despite operating in probably the, the bottom quarter of what would be deemed to be liquid emerging market countries. And I think the point there is that you want to have quality market makers on these products, 
uh, who you are prepared to make a market you know through different parts of the cycle to ensure that your spreads are tight because the risk in EM is that you know if there's no lead market maker or there's not enough lead market making support that you get very wide spreads when people are training out of the product. It's a key point of the execution and the process. And it's also a key point of offering people what I believe is a competitive product at a competitive spread. And I want to turn to the market itself. I mean, Southeast Asia is made up of countries that are, by their very nature, heterogeneous. You know, they have different dynamics. They are on different sides of the sort of energy complex and different sides of the tech complex. I wonder where you sort of position your skill set. Do you try and be a jack of all trades within those markets and try and understand the various drivers of each? Or do you try and focus, and you mentioned digitalization, and think about digitalization across the countries? So actually, the way we got to the five countries was actually through a pretty systematic filter. So we looked at the world, and the first criteria we looked at, we looked at the countries of 100 million plus people. And that basically reduces the world from 193 countries to 15 countries. Then we looked at countries that have grown dollar nominal GDP since 2000 at over 5% a year. And that reduces the pool from 15 countries to 12 countries. And then we looked at countries that had less than 5% FX depreciation per year, which in emerging markets is a key metric to look at, given FX can obviously impact equity returns over longer periods of time. And that basically reduces the pool from 12 to 9 countries. What is in those nine countries? It's the four BRICs, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and it's the five Cubs, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Pakistan, Philippines, Vietnam. And how we differentiate between the BRICs and the Cubs is that the BRICs individually have over 5% exposure in the key emerging market indices. None of the Cubs individually have more than 1%. Two of the Cubs have more than a half percent. Collectively, they only have 2% exposure in the indices. So the point is, we're focused on of those nine countries, we're focused on the Cubs, not the BRICS, because we believe the Cubs are underrepresented, untapped, and frankly, very hard to get access to. That's how we get to these five countries specifically. doesn't mean that the country criteria could change. It could. We would reassess this on an annual basis and not on a quarterly basis. But ultimately, we're not trying to trade around quarters, as I mentioned. We only trade on a quarterly basis. What we're looking at is what we believe are a set of companies and countries which have secular, long-term robust outlook, and we're entering in a reasonable, sensible part of the cycle. I want to pick up on something you said earlier, and it was one of your first steps in your investment process, which was ESG exclusions. Now, what do you mean by ESG exclusions, and how does that differ to ESG inclusions? So today, we, we take an approach where we exclude certain industries by virtue of you know, what they do today. Now, personally, I actually believe that an ESG inclusion approach, which doesn't exclude companies by virtue of their industry, but rather excludes companies by virtue of how do they do business in the industry. And then what we recognize is it's harder for a company to reconsider its, its industry than it is to reconsider how it does business in that industry. So today, for example, we don't invest in tobacco, we don't invest in mining, we don't invest in gambling, uh, we don't invest in fossil fuels. Going forward, I'd like to move to an approach where we could consider companies across all industries, and then we rather focus on the conduct of companies in that particular industry which would, again, would suggest an ESG inclusion approach. Now, in order to do that, we would need some kind of third-party validation on how our company is scoring from an ESG level. I think there's many flaws to ESG scores, but I do believe it's a starting point in being able to quantitatively compare how companies are performing in the same country across different industries. So that's kind of why, where we're going to. Now, what are we doing to achieve that? Again, today, that is not possible. Every year, the way we think about ESG is Every year we have an ESG agenda priority. So this year, the priority is we write to each chairman and CEO of each company. It's a letter. It's posted on the website of our, of our company. 
that basically emphasizes why does the industry matter, two, what is our industry approach today, and three, what would be required to move to an industry inclusion approach, and why should these companies even bother with getting an ESG rating? And then what you see is that ESG ratings are in developed markets are relatively prevalent. I think in emerging markets, they are still relatively nascent, especially in Southeast Asia. And I think ESG accountability starts with ESG disclosure and ESG compliance. So from this company's perspective, getting an outside in rating, being required to disclose that rating should only help these companies internally as they you know, reconsider where they're scoring well and what are the potential rooms for opportunity or rooms for improvement on an ESG level. Now, beyond the scoring, obviously what we take quite seriously, when we think about ESG in emerging markets, we think about risk. And when we think about risk, we think about governance, which is why we spend time getting to you know, speak or meet with management in each of these companies. I think we're one of the only ETFs that does that. And the reason that behind that is basically to, to gauge you know, who are the people, who's the, not only the horse, i.e. the company, but also who's the jockey uh, managing um, the, the company. And that's why we focus on, on both of those. So ESG for us starts with risk, but we would like to move to an ESG inclusion approach. That's not possible today, but we believe ESG scoring is the starting point in helping us get to that approach. And I wonder, as we look to the future, it's early days with Dawn Global at the moment, but where would you like to see the company in three years' time? And, you know, do you have capacity constraints on the strategy that you're currently managing? So we, we've looked at size in a few ways. We've looked at free from market cap. We've looked at ADV, uh, average daily value traded, uh, to have an idea of you know, how big could the strategy be. The view from the market makers is under the current approach with the current portfolio approach, which is equal weighting, this could easily become a strategy of you know, north of a, a billion and a half dollars based on just uh, capacity. In terms of the, the outlook for the company, the outlook for Dawn Global is to basically uh, have a number of regional ETFs with an active thematic lens. The first being Southeast Asia. We've been approached about doing something in the Middle East and doing something in Latin. And I think where I'd like to be is basically have a number of active thematic, regionally focused EM products beyond the index. And that started with the Cubs, but I think I would rule out there will be further products going forward. Final question. I want to know what advice you would give to some of our younger listeners who are perhaps just starting out in the investment business, or indeed to yourself when you were starting out, when you were in your first couple of years at Goldman Sachs. What advice would you give to that cohort of people? And what skills do you think they need to equip themselves with to be successful in this industry? I mean, I think one of the first things I learned in my first job is, is uh, attention to detail. I think being able to zoom in, zoom out. So I think you know, being able to focus on detail, but also be able to like see the bigger picture, especially when you're an analyst, I think it's quite easy to, to maybe you know, get succumbed in the detail. And I think to understand the context and to understand the bigger picture is as important, especially as you grow through your career. But I think uh, from a career perspective, I think to keep an open mind, you know, when I started my career 10 years ago, I never heard of an ETF. When I you know, started investing actively in emerging markets six years ago, I hadn't even touched an ETF before. And I think your know, financial markets, they change quite quickly. And I think uh, if you're in the early stage of your career, I think you want to observe the changes and I think you want to understand the changes. And I think you want to be relatively open-minded in where you would go. I, I never thought I would go to emerging markets after starting in commodities. I never thought I'd be running an ETF business today after I started in emerging markets, long only investing six years ago. So I think the industry is dynamic and I think you have to be open to the changes that are presented to you. And it's very hard to predict or to forecast what the trajectory will be. So keep an open mind and be able to zoom in and zoom out. I like it. Moritz Pot, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Jack. I really enjoyed the conversation with you. 
Thank you for listening to the Wine Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Maurits Pot. If you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like and subscribe to the podcast? And if you have any questions on any of the topics Maurits and I discussed, then do get in touch at wineinvest at waverton.co.uk. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.